The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers that sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening. Good to be with you this evening. If we haven't met before, if you're new, I want to welcome you uh, in particular. Uh, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of being a pastor here at Citizens. Uh, we would love to connect with you, get you more information about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a part of our church. The easiest way to do that is for you to fill out that little blue connect card in the bulletin. Uh, we're not going to spam you or show up at your house or anything like that. Uh, we have a gift for you, and we'd love to just get you more information, if you'd like it, about who we are as a church. Uh, we exist to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. That's what we've been going for since we started a little over a year ago as a new church on the east side of Charlotte. Uh, James chapter 2, we're, we're, we're continuing in our series through the book of James. And uh, just kind of to give you a little picture into my heart, I am usually not nervous preaching. I've done this enough now to not really like be that uh, at unease whenever I'm in front of you guys. But this is a strong word that we have to, to get into and to dive into uh, tonight. And I say this without, uh, without any exaggeration. If you misinterpret or misunderstand James chapter 2, particularly 14 through 26, then you will miss the entire gospel of Jesus. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that with an exaggeration of like, here's my catchy intro to get you to want to listen to what I have to say. I mean, if you get James chapter 2 wrong, you will get the gospel wrong. The very essence of what it is that we believe as followers of Jesus. In fact, one of the arguments that folks will give as to why they don't uh, believe in Jesus, why they're not Christians, is the Bible is incongruent. The Bible disagrees with itself. And if you press folks, oftentimes the place they point when they say the Bible contradicts itself is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. It seems like it contradicts the rest of of the New Testament, the rest of what the Bible says. And so in order to be helpful tonight, what I need to do, and I need you to, to come along with me in this journey, is that we need to do about 20-ish, emphasis on the ish, minutes of teaching to kind of show you what's happening in this passage. And then I promise at the end, I will preach my guts out for you and get this into your life, okay? I need you to follow with me. It's not just Bible nerd, look at Tim. He likes the nuances of the Bible time, okay? This is genuine. We have to understand James chapter two so that we don't get the gospel wrong, okay? So what we're going for, let me pray for us. Let me ask the spirit to be with us to that end. 
And then we'll get to work. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for the goodness of the gospel. And that by your cross, that you, through your death and through your resurrection, have been the double cure of sin. That you have saved us from your just, righteous wrath. You've made us pure. You've declared us righteous. You've made us right with you, right with one another. We're invited into your kingdom, your family, that we have everlasting union with the Son. And so I pray that you would encourage us with that reality tonight. God, in the, in the sinfulness of my heart, I would rather preach a soft word. I would rather preach a word that seems more gentle, God, but you are after a deeper joy for us. You're after a deeper truth, a deeper reality. Would you, would you tear down the walls of our hearts? Give us ears to hear what it is that your word has for us. It's true, it's living, it's active, and it's powerful. And so we cling to that promise. Send your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 2, a lot of it's not going to be on the screen, so you're going to want a bulletin, it's printed in there, or a Bible on the ends of the rows, or your phone, that's what we all do. James chapter 2. Let's start this evening by looking at the big argument that James is making in the text. We're going to hop around quite a bit tonight. Look at verse 14. I want to set up James's big argument for us. James chapter 2, verses 14. What good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? So James starts out with two rhetorical questions, and he says first, what good is it if someone claims to have faith, but has no works? Works is just a Christian term in the Bible for good deeds, good actions. If someone says, I have faith in Jesus, but has no Christian works to give evidence to that faith, what good is it? And it's a rhetorical question with the implied answer of what? We're going to talk back tonight. No, right? No. Y'all can talk to me. This This is interactive. No, it's no good. If you have faith, but you don't have works, it is no good. Then he asks another question. Can that faith save him? A faith that has no corresponding works, can it save him? What's the rhetorical answer? No. No. Skip down to verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So no rhetorical question here, just a straightforward statement. If you have faith, but you don't have works that go along with that faith, your faith is dead. It's useless. It's no good. It's not a saving faith. It's dead. Skip down to verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James says, in case you want to start arguing with me here, he calls you foolish. His words, not mine. I would never call you foolish. He says, you foolish person, do you want to be shown that faith apart from, not accompanied by, without works is useless? That word useless there can also be translated as dead. Do you want to be shown that your faith without corresponding works is dead? Skip down to verse 26, the end of the passage. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what's James's big argument in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26? 
Faith without works is dead. Yes, good job, us. Faith without works is dead. That's James's big argument from these 13 verses. If you say you have faith and you do not have corresponding works that give proof or evidence or back up that faith, then your faith is dead. It's useless. It's not good. Now, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable, right? Like it kind of messes with me a little bit, but the crux of the passage where most people get a bent out of shape is actually in verse 24. This is where people get the most squirrely on it. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. All right, hold up. That sounds very different than the gospel that we've been singing. Sounds very different than the gospel that we've been preaching as a church for the last two years. That sounds really different from a lot of the rest of the New Testament, right? If you've read the rest of the Bible, you might have some warning signs going off, like, hold up, time out, James, justified by works and not by faith. That sounds different than what Jesus says. That sounds different than what the New Testament says specifically, and especially that sounds really different than what the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, says. So James says in 2.24, you're justified by works and not by faith alone. But look at what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, what? No one will be justified. Or consider Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through, what? Faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul's big point here and in so many of his other writings is that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot justify or make ourselves right before God through any work of our own. That's the gospel he preached. That's the gospel we preach as a church, that in the cross of Jesus alone, we are accepted and welcomed and forgiven and declared righteous before God, that we have nothing to offer but our sin. And yet through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he washes us and gives us his righteousness. That's Paul's whole point in the New Testament. You are made right with God through faith. You can't do anything to save yourself. But then what do you do with James chapter 2, verse 24, right? If Paul's big point, if the, the goal of the gospel, the point of the New Testament is we're justified by faith, what do you do when James says we're justified by works? In fact, I want to show you this uh, in your face seeming contradiction. How do you reconcile these two verses? They'll be on the screen. James 2, 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then Paul in Romans 3, 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Which one is it? We justified by works and not by faith alone, or are we justified by faith alone? What do you do with that? One of the things I like to do when I'm getting ready to preach uh, a sermon is I like to introduce the topic of that sermon into conversations with people throughout the weeks ahead, which y'all are like, I'm never talking to you again. That's fine. <laughs> but I've been bringing up this passage to folks in our church that I love, and I won't say any names in particular, uh, but I'll be like, hey, I'm preaching on James 2. James says in 2.24, we're justified by works. Like, what do you do with that? And myself included, the general answer is kind of like, ha ignore it. <laughs> Go back to Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. Makes me happy. You see how the gospel's at stake? 
Do you see how our standing before God is at stake? What do you do with that? What do you do with this contradiction that James would say you're justified by works and Paul would say you're justified by faith? Do you just dismiss it? Say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's the living, breathing, true, active, perfect word of God, right? James and Paul. So here's what I want to do. I want to spend some time tonight. This is the theological headiness. I want to prove to you that James and Paul are not contradicting. Maybe you've read ahead in James. You've been reading through with us in the Bible plan, and you're like, I don't know what to do with that. I just kind of laugh and move on to the other stuff. Maybe you are trying to engage your neighbors or coworkers or friends or family with the gospel, and they've maybe brought this up. Hey, what do you do with this? Or maybe you're like, I didn't know this was a problem. Now I'm worried. I want to help answer how you reconcile James and Paul. I'm going to give you three tools, three ways to reconcile James and Paul. Number one, James and Paul are gospel partners. James and Paul are gospel partners. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. This is what Paul says. He says, Then, after 14 years, I, I being Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So if you're not familiar with the story of Paul, he's a persecutor of the early church. He's going around traveling, killing people that are putting their faith in Jesus. God gets a hold of his attention on the Damascus road. Jesus shows up and is like, you're not persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. And Paul's like, I am. And he's like, yes, Paul repents. He becomes a leading missionary, planting hundreds of churches across the ancient world. And he spends 14 years doing that. 14 years in prison, 14 years suffering, 14 years preaching, living with next to nothing for most of his life, preaching the gospel of justification by faith alone, preaching, hey, you are made right with God through faith. And then he says, after 14 years, I went to Jerusalem to consult some folks to make sure that I wasn't doing that in vain. I would have done it before 14 years. He took 14 years. He says, I go up, I want to make sure, is this gospel that I'm preaching, that you're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, actually true? Skip down to verse 9, Galatians 2. And when James, James, the author of this book, half-brother of Jesus, and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul, after 14 years of preaching salvation by grace through faith alone, goes to Jerusalem. Hey, is this good? Are we good with this? And James is like, we're good with this. Sounds good. And they high five. That's the modern day translation of right hand of fellowship. They hash it out, yep, theological high five, good job, you're preaching the right gospel. So we know they consulted with each other, right? So they can't disagree, they can't have incongruent gospels, they can't have contradictory gospels, because they met up and said, I'm preaching this, yep, sounds good, let's do it, you go there, we'll go there, good to go. James and Paul are gospel partners. They're on the same team, they checked the gospel they were preaching together. So we know they're not contradictory, let me give you two more ways we know that. Number two, James is writing to religious lazy people, and Paul to lost people. James is writing to religious lazy people, and Paul to lost people. Look back at that last part of Galatians 2.9. James says, they, or Paul says, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, notice, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised, or the Jews. So they check out the gospel, yep, good to go, dap it up, good, you go there, we'll go there. They go to two separate audiences. They're ministering to, preaching to, writing to, two different groups with two different needs. So James 
is writing primarily to Jewish converts who have put their faith in Jesus. It's all of these people who grew up in this big system of legalism and rules to earn favor with God. They've been told the gospel, and now they're brought into this new system of grace. But they've started abusing it. It's cheap grace. It's become grace that kind of makes them shrug their shoulders and go, well, you know, I'm saved by grace, so I can do whatever I want, live however I want, spend my time however I want, treat people however I want, spend my money however I want. It doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace, right? And James says, no, you don't understand If you have real faith, that's not how you're going to act. That's not how you're going to think. If you have real, genuine faith, that's going to change your life. More on that in a second. Paul, on the other hand, is writing primarily to Gentiles, people who are outside of the Jewish covenant people of God. And they're all terrified and afraid. They're like, Paul, we like the gospel. Like, do we have to become Jewish? Are we going to hell anyways? Do I need to follow these Jewish feasts? Do I need to offer sacrifices? Do I need to get circumcised? Please tell me I don't have to get circumcised. That's a church joke. Thank you. Speak in tongues, like how much money do I have to give? Like what do I have to do? Paul, tell us what to do so we can be right with God. And Paul says, no, 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 you are forgiven by grace through faith. Faith alone makes you right with Jesus. Imagine this, let me give you uh, what I think is a helpful illustration. Imagine you're sitting in a doctor's waiting room and it's a small waiting room and it's so small that you can overhear what the doctor is saying in the patient's rooms right next door, which I know is against like all the HIPAA rules, nurses, don't get mad at me, it's a story. So you're sitting there in the waiting room and you see the doctor go into one patient's room and you overhear through the wall, I need you to get up, start working out, start moving, get on the treadmill, run, exercise, do something to get moving. He leaves the first patient's room, he goes into another patient's room and you overhear, hey, I need you to stop working out. I need you to sit down, I need you to rest, I need you to put your feet up, don't run, don't work out, stay off the treadmill. Contradictions? Different patients. Patient in room one just had a heart attack. Or patient in room one, rather, is going to have a heart attack. They need to work out. They need to exercise. They have some heart problems, and they need to get moving. They need to get physical, get the blood pumping, work on their aerobic capacity. Patient number two just broke their ankle. They need to sit down. It's not a contradiction when you consider two different patients. Same doctor, two messages, two different patients. Tracking? All right, that's number two. Number three, James argues for proof of salvation... Paul for means of salvation. James argues for proof of salvation. Paul for means of salvation. James and Paul use two different meanings for the same word. So silly illustration. Let's say you're coming over to my house tomorrow, and I'm like, hey, when you come over to my house, bring a bat. What I have in mind by asking you to bring a bat is a wooden pole that we can use to hit some baseballs. But you show up at my house tomorrow, and you bring me a black flying nocturnal mammal. (laughs) Same word, different meanings. That's what's happening when Paul and James use the word justified. In the Greek New Testament, the word justified can be translated two different ways with two different meanings. So the first way you can translate it is to make right. That's how Paul uses it in Galatians 2, Romans 3 through 4, that you are made right. You are justified, declared, and made right with God through faith. That when we just sang about or said about in our liturgy, right, the great exchange, when Christ dies, rises again, we put our faith in him, he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. You are made right with God through faith. You're justified. The second meaning is not to make right, but to prove right. Jesus uses it himself this way in Luke 7, 35. He says, wisdom is justified by her children, meaning that wisdom is proven correct. The advice you give is proven to be wise if it works or not. It's proven right. The clearest way to see this is how both Paul and James use Abraham 
to talk about two different things. I told you we're going there. Stay with me. We're good? Everybody good? Cool. Romans 4, 1 through 3. A few verses after Romans 3, 28, where Paul says, you're justified by faith. He uses the example of Abraham. This is what he says. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What Paul is referring to is a scene from Genesis 15. This moment in Abraham's life where first he was named Abram, and God comes to him, and he promises him that he is going to have a son. And that Abraham's son would have more sons, who would have more sons, and Father Abraham would have many sons. You've heard the song. Thank you, Matt. And that God would make Abraham into a great nation. So he shows up to Abraham, Genesis 15, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your descendants are going to be my people, the people of Israel set apart to worship me. Abraham puts faith and trust in the unseen promise of God, and he is declared righteous. Even though the chapter before and the chapter right after, he is very much not living righteously. But because of his faith in God, God declares him righteous. And Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, but it wasn't by works. He believed. That's why he was declared made righteous before he does anything. James also talks about Abraham. Look back at this, James chapter 2, back in our passage. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So James is referring to a completely different scene in the life of Abraham. It's Genesis 22, 30 years and seven chapters after Abraham believes the promise and is made right with God, God calls him to step out in faith to sacrifice his son Isaac. And if you know the story, Abraham's about to do that, proving that he does love God, trust God. God steps in and provides a ram instead. And James uses that scene to say, hey, 30 years later, the faith that made Abraham right was completed or proven or fulfilled through his willingness to be obedient to God. Let me sum this up for us in a statement. According to Paul, Abraham is justified or made right by faith alone. But then according to James, he is justified or proven right through his faith-filled works. Say that again, it's on the screen. Abraham is justified, made right by faith alone, but then he is justified, proven right through his faith-filled works. In other words, we know Abraham had a saving, living faith because after he believed, he walked in ongoing obedience as his life was ongoingly changed. This is James' point. Kind of get us to what he's talking about in chapter two. You are made right with God by faith. Faith alone, faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus makes you right with God. But according to James, works validate or prove that your faith is in fact genuine, that it is in fact real. And so for James, as he sets us up in verse 14, he's not comparing faith versus works. He's comparing two different types of faith, a dead faith and a living faith. He says, dead faith has no change, no works, no deeds, and it proves not to be real, but a living, genuine, real faith moves us and works within us to good works. That's our title for tonight. That's what we're going and talking about, living faith works. 
So James is not saying you need works to be saved. He is saying that if you are saved, works will flow out of that. To quote reformer John Calvin, you are justified by faith alone, but a justifying faith is never alone. True, real faith always is accompanied by works. So the living faith of Abraham, where he is made right with God 30 years later, proves itself in his life through his sacrificial obedience to God. Faith is proven to be living and real based on someone's changed life. Jesus says the same thing. Matthew 12, 33, he says, look at a tree. If a tree has good living fruit, it's a living tree. And if it has dead fruit, it's a dead tree. Same way, if a person's life has works, then their faith is living. And if there's no works, no effect, no deeds, it is not a living faith. To put it even more clearly, the Bible in James does not have a category for someone who claims to be a Christian, but does not have good works. It's not a category according to the New Testament. What James is saying is real faith has an effect on your life. Real living faith produces works. Gradual, yes. Slow, yes. Two steps forward, a step and a half back, yes. But it has an ongoing change. And if there's no effect, if there's no works, it's not real. It's not useful. Silly way to think about it is the difference between a real fireplace and a Netflix fire. (laughs) Netflix fire is not real. It looks cool, but it's not real. There's no heat, there's no smoke, there's no uh, smell. It's not real, it's fake. A real fire has real effect. You can feel its warmth. You can feel it burning. You can smell the smoke. And that's what James is saying. Dead faith has no effect. It has no works. It is not useful. It cannot save. So, because we're all still with me, here's how I want to end. When I say end, I mean like I got 10 more minutes, so don't get too excited. That's my teaching. That's what James is talking about. Faith without works is dead. If you don't have works, you don't have living, saving faith. And here's why I want to end. In the passage, he gives us four descriptions of a dead faith. Four evidences to know if we have a living faith or a dead faith. They're not mine. They're actually borrowed from a friend of mine. I liked him so much. I asked him permission, and he said, I forgot I did that. That sounds awesome. Do that. So I'm going to use them because they're good. Four evidences of a dead faith. This is where I want to close. I just want to walk us through these real quick, try to push this into our lives. James says, you don't have works. You probably don't have faith. You're probably not a Christian. Four evidences of a dead faith. The first is found in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? Notice, if someone says he has faith, but no works. Here's number one, four evidences of a dead faith, a Christian label without a changed life. They get progressively more mean. I'm sorry. James, not me, obviously. I'm nice. A Christian label without a changed life. How dangerous is that? How dangerous is that? That Someone would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I prayed a prayer when I was younger. I even got baptized. I walked the aisle. Like Christ mattered for me for a little bit. All that Christian label without a changed life. How dangerous is that? Particularly, how dangerous is that in the Bible Belt South? One of the reasons why Lindsay and I really felt called to to plant here, and I I know a number of you guys who moved with us felt the same, is because I deeply believe uh, this line that novelist Flannery O'Connor wrote. She said this. She said, while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. You feel that? 
Christ haunted, this remnant of Jesus, this remnant of conversation after conversation. Yeah, I kind of grew up around some Christian things. I grew up around some church stuff. I grew up around that. Like, I'm, I prayed the prayer. I, I'm going to heaven when I die. Cool. Why? Well, I prayed the prayer, right? The danger of Christianity becoming this get out of hell free card. It's so easy to get caught in that, that trap. I wish I was joking. Here's what happens. This is not my personal experience. I grew up in a, in a good church, but this is an experience of a good friend of mine. Because here's what happens in churches, especially in the South. Kids ministry. What happens on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night is they bring all the kids into the gym. And they say, all right, kids, line up in the middle. Now, if you want to go to hell and burn forever and be separated from your parents and your puppy named Baxter, run to this side of the gym. But if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be with your, your friends and your parents forever, and you want a lollipop right now, go to this side of the gym. I'm, I wish I was joking about this story. And what do they do, right? All the kids are like, what, lollipop? Yes, and they all run over here, and they're like, lollipop, grace has never tasted so sweet. Full of jokes tonight, thank you. And here's what happens, though. The dangerous part is that the church declares over them, you're a Christian now. You're saved. And what happens is that becomes a title that gets lodged deep within us for the rest of our lives. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I view my life. It doesn't matter if my life, one for one, looks exactly the same as my neighbor who hates God. Because one time when I was six, the church said I was a Christian. So I'm a Christian. Listen, I'm pro-altar calls, okay? Like, I am for immediate responses to the good news of the gospel. Every week when we gather, we invite you, hey, if you're not a Christian, don't take communion, take Christ. I am for immediate responses by the power of the Spirit to the, to the good news of the gospel. The danger is when we latch on to this profession we made 25 years ago and have zero evidence at all that our life got changed at all by the good news of Jesus. That's the danger. Christian label without a changed life, where you would say, yeah, there's no evidence that this mattered to me at all. I'm not saying stumbling. None of these. I'm not saying stumbling. I'm not saying up and down. I'm not saying a little bit forward, a little bit back. I'm saying there's no evidence that I cared about Christ at all. No evidence of change. That's number one. We got three more. Christian label without a changed life. The second comes from verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here's number two, compassionate words without compassionate actions. Compassionate words without compassionate actions. James sets up a hypothetical scenario. Uh, let me put it in modern day. Brent's in the front. Brent, can I use you for this? You can stay there. Thanks. Uh, so Brent, this morning, uh, is, goes for a run. He goes out, and he's getting a jog on. He's going to go for a run. And while he's on this run, his house has a gas leak. And his entire house burns down. And while his house is burning down, somebody across the world also gets a hold of his Social Security number and steals his identity and drains out his bank accounts. So Brent is left with nothing but his running shoes, his shorts, and his t-shirt. And it's cold in Charlotte right now. So Brent's like, you know what I need to do? I need to go to church. These people love me. I'm a part of their church family. They're going to take care of me. And so James shows up, or not James, sorry, Brent. <laughs> Mind. Brent shows up to the gathering, and he stands out on the front steps, t-shirt, shorts, running shoes. And all of us stop by because we care deeply about Brent. We're like, Brent, have you heard of a jacket? Brent's like, yeah, here's what happened. And he tells us one after the other his story of what happens. And we're good people. We love Brent. 
So we're like, man, I'm really sorry about that, Brent. I'll be praying for you, Brent. Hey, man, that sounds tough, man. You should probably try to find some food and some clothes, Brent. <laughs> ah, peace be with you, Brent. Receive it. Peace be with you. Compassionate words without compassionate action. And James says, hey, if your life is marked by simply compassionate words without compassionate action, you have good reason to think you haven't actually been changed by Jesus. This is everything that Garrison talked about last week, right? If you actually get the gospel, if you actually believe I am spiritually destitute without Jesus, that I am poor and broken and cannot do anything to make God love me, that is going to change not how you just live in word, but how you live in deed toward those who are in a physical circumstance that's the same as your spiritual reality. See that? You're actually changed by the gospel going, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I am poor and broken in need of Jesus. That is going to affect how you move towards in action those around you, particularly in your church family who are in need. And James says, if you have no history of ever stepping out to care for at a great cost to yourself, the good of someone in need in your church, there's good reason to think you don't have saving faith. And it's really easy to say that, right? It's really easy on the surface to be like, yep, good job, Garrison, preach the word, James too, I agree with you, don't have favoritism, don't show partiality to the poor, I'm with you, I care. It's another thing when the rubber hits the road, because here's what happens. We might say, yeah, I believe that I'm saved by grace through faith, but in reality, underneath the surface, there's this lie that we actually are where we are in life because we've done a pretty good job. I've made some good decisions. I've said no to the right stuff, said yes to the right stuff. I've worked hard. I'm a self-made person. I am where I am. And so what happens is when we carry around that functional belief is that anytime we come in contact with someone who checks in lower on the life management scale than we do, we have two options, disdain or ignoring them. We think, why can't they just get their life together? Why can't they just be like me? Come on, Brent, just like figure out your, your social security thing, man. James says, if we don't have any compassionate action, there's good reason to think we have not actually been changed by the good news of the gospel. Number three comes from verse 19. Actually, the last two do. Verse 19. This verse has been messing with me all week, you guys. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Thumbs up from James. Even the demons believe and shudder. Number three. Evidences of a dead faith, right doctrine without love for God. Right doctrine without love for God. We've been hitting this drum a lot, but I'm going to hit it again. Listen to me, church. Correct doctrine does not save you. Right ideas about God it does not save you. Here's what's been flooring me about this verse. It made teaching team uncomfortable, so I kept it in the sermon. Demons know a lot of theology. Have you thought about that? Demons know a lot of doctrine. In fact, I would argue demons know more doctrine than your favorite pastor that you read or podcast. And demons don't become Christians. Demons don't trust in Jesus for salvation. So it would be foolish to think that simply more knowledge about God is what's going to lead to our heart transformation. Or to think that the answer to our sin or to think that the answer to salvation is simply to know a lot about God because James says, hey, demons know a lot about God. And save them. Knowing the right things and loving God as evidenced by your works are two totally different categories. This is everything we talked about two weeks ago. Hearing and obeying God's word. And so I want you to hear me, church. Knowledge accumulation is a good thing. 
Studying God's word is a good thing. Reading theology, reading deep things about God is a good thing. Don't be one of those people that's like, I'm just not a reader. Like, God has revealed himself, all right? It's a good thing to know and study truths about God, but studying as an ends doesn't work. Studying to just go more knowledge accumulation, more knowledge accumulation doesn't save. That knowledge must translate into love of God and submission to him as Savior and Lord. Why? Because faith without works is dead. So faith that stops at empty thoughts, empty doctrine, empty ideas, empty truths, it doesn't actually get into your life is good reason to think, maybe I don't have saving faith, living faith. Last one again comes from verse 19. I'll read it one more time. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Number four, fearful shuddering without real repentance. Fearful shuddering without real repentance. That, that word shudder is like a physical reaction where your, your hair kind of stands up. You get some fear goosebumps. It's like uh, Lion King whenever he's like Mufasa and all the hyenas are like, ooh. <laughs> That's shuddering, right? Can you th- like, just be baffled at the Bible with me for a second, all right? James says, you believe that God is one. Good job. A plus, you got some doctrine. Demons have good doctrine and they shudder. So here's what that means. You can have fearful shuddering of God without real repentance. Because here's what happens. We stop our view of God halfway. All right, track with me here. So what happens is we have a partially right view of God, right? So we begin to think, okay, God is holy and I'm not, so I can't dwell with him. And God is powerful and he has righteous and just wrath for sin and sinners. And so what happens is because we stop there with some fearful, Mufasa, what happens is that we go false into our repentance. And what that means is that we go, okay, God is holy, I am not. God is powerful, I am not. I want my life to go well, so God, I'm really sorry. Like, think about your personal relationships, right? You know when someone wrongs you and they're not actually sorry for wronging you, they're just trying to get out of the consequence, right? So they hurt you, they say something wrong against you, they backstab you, betray you, whatever, and they come to you and they're like, hey, I'm really, really sorry. And you can just tell. It's like, no, you're not. You just really don't want me to be mad at you. You just really don't want me to have consequences for you. You really just want me to let it go so that you don't feel bad. And we can bring the same posture to God to saying, okay, I don't have genuine repentance. I don't actually love him or see him for who he is, drawing me into beautiful relationship with him. So it's not repentance that goes, Jesus is better. I want him over this stuff. It's fearful shuddering that goes, I just don't want him to get mad at me because I want my life to be okay. James says that's dead faith. Even the demons have a reaction to God. We see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus shows up on the scene, and demons are like, what do you want with us, son of man? <laughs> you want us to get out? We'll go out. You want us to go into the pigs, go off the cliff? We'll go off the cliff. What do you want from us? Even the demons have fearful shuddering, but they don't have real, genuine repentance that says God is better than these broken cisterns. God is better than these false idols. I want him. God, I want you. It's not just because I don't want you to punish me. It's not because I just don't want to go to hell because it sounds scary and painful. It's because I want you. You, for eternity. That's number four, fearful shuddering without real repentance. Here's where I actually want to close. James says it over and over again in this whole book and in this whole passage, living faith works. Faith without works is dead. If you don't have works, you probably don't have faith. Let me, let me say what James is saying slightly different than James. When someone professes faith in Jesus, the Bible says they're given the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is actually put inside of you to change you, shape you, mold you, grow you in the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, all the things we read about in Galatians 5, that you're actually changed by God if you become a Christian. So here's what happens. If you claim to be a Christian, if someone claims to have faith and has not or is not being changed, that means there's two options. Either one, the Holy Spirit's not doing his job, or two, that faith isn't real. Now, option A is never true. We have promises from God that God does what he says he's going to do, that the Spirit does change his people slowly, yes. Forward and back, sure. Ups and downs, yes. But the Spirit does change people. So if you say, I'm a Christian, but have no evidence of change, either God's not who he says he is and isn't doing what he promised to do, or you don't have genuine faith. Here's how we want to end tonight. Before we go into communion, uh, if you're new, welcome. Um, I'm going to leave these four evidences on the screen. Here's what I want to do. Church, I'm after your joy. I genuinely am after your joy. And I was, I was praying about this uh, today, kind of getting ready uh, for, for preaching. And I just kept going back to this reality that I, I'm after, and, and that's cool, but God is after your joy. And so here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to be honest before the Holy Spirit. We're going to leave these four evidences up on the board. Evidences of a dead faith, Christian label without a changed life, compassionate words without compassionate action, right doctrine without love for God, fearful shuddering without real repentance. Ben's going to come up in just a second, not to set some emotional thing, but just to eliminate distraction. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to press in with the Spirit on these four things. I want you to be honest with God and with yourself. And I want you to say, Lord, do I have evidence of a living faith? Are these true about me? Do I only have fearful shuddering or do I have real repentance? Do I only have right doctrine or do I actually love you? Do I have compassionate words or do I actually live out those compassionate words? Do I have a changed life or is it just a label that I've been wearing because of something that happened in my past? I want you to be honest before yourself and honest with the Spirit. And when I say I'm after your joy, here's what I mean. That's going to lead to one of two responses. And I pray that both of them, and think that both of them will be for your joy. Option number one is, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I've been playing the Christian game. I've been doing some Christian things because I want God to like me and set up my life well. I've just been kind of going through the motions because I live in Charlotte and it's what my friends do. It's what my spouse does. It's what my family does. And I'm not actually a Christian. And listen, that's for your joy because praise God that he would expose that. And praise God that he would show you that and praise God that he would say, yes, put your faith in me. Trust me for salvation. Believe in me. Option two that is also for your joy is that you would look at these lists and you would say, praise God, there's evidence of salvation in my life. Is it perfect? No. Is it mustard seed size faith? Absolutely. Is it two steps forward, two steps back? Sure, a lot of the time. Sanctification kind of looked like this? Sure. But praise God. There's evidences in my life that he has saved me. And so it's a chance for you to rejoice and become a Christian, or it's a chance for you to rejoice at God's saving work in your life. Either way, this is a chance for joy. This is an opportunity for your joy. I'm going to give a few minutes just after I pray here in a second. Uh, if you're like, after the five minutes or a few minutes or whatever, you're like, I don't know. I still don't really know. Like, what, what am I? I would encourage you this week to take it to community to wrestle with it with other believers in Christ. Take it to your leader. Y'all come on up. Take it to your leader. Take it to your trusted Christian friend. Take it to a family member who knows you and knows Jesus and say, hey, I don't know. I wrestled with it. I'm really not sure if I'm a Christian. Will you just speak into this and tell me? Let him be honest. Have a lowered bar. Let me, let me pray for us, and I'm just going to give us some space, and then I'll come back up and lead us in communion after that. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. God, thank you that you 
by the power of your might have given us your word and your revelation of yourself. And it causes us to deal with some hard words, God. And I pray that you uh, in this room tonight would show people, wherever they're at on the, on the map, God, that you would show them that you are for their joy. God, that you're not after condemnation. You're not after unnecessary shame. You're not after unelicited guilt, God. But you are in the business of saving people. And so I pray if there's folks in the room who don't know you, God, that you, by the power of your spirit, would reveal that in this moment. God, and you would show them, hey, I'm not a Christian, God. Would you give them honesty? Maybe they've been members at our church since we started. Maybe they moved with us, and they were like, I'm going to plant a church. Surely this means I'm a Christian. And you, by the power of your spirit, are revealing, hey, that's not true, and here's the evidence. But I invite you to put your faith in me and to trust me. God, for those of us who do know you, who are walking with you, God, would you not give any unnecessary conviction that we don't need? But rather, would you remind us of your steadfast love for us that remains faithful when we are faithless? God, so I pray that you, that you would not be a God of confusion because you're not, but you would be a God of truth and reality with whatever it is we need. In Christ's name, amen.